0: For 2,000 years, out of joy, the Church of Jesus Christ has spread across the globe. For 2,000 years, men, women, and children have joined themselves to this church, bonded by a common faith. For 2,000 years, these people together have by faith proclaimed what they believe to the world. Many have used a simple summary, the Apostles' Creed, to do just that. This fall at Holy Cross, with the church through the ages, we do the same and look closer at how this simple creed has summarized the teaching of the Bible and has gone from being just what Christians believe to what I believe. The book of Hebrews, that's uh, about two-thirds of the way through your Bible in the New Testament towards the end. If you don't have a Bible with you, that's cool. We've got some uh, on the back table. We've also got the the text that we're going to be going through in your order of worship in the bulletin. So however you can have it in front of you, it would be good to have it in front of you because one of the ways that we... We view preaching here is that it's not just stories and helpful hints; it is actually God's word, explaining it, expositing it, and applying it to our lives. And so, we think it's important for you to have it in front of you. That's why we give you so many options uh, to that end. Well, let me let me bring us into what we're doing. Christian theology, theology being the study of God and the study of the things of God, Christian theology is question based. And what I mean by that is that the work of theology, theology begins when we begin asking questions of God's Word. What's God like? Is He, is he loving? Is He, is he angry? What, what, who is this Jesus guy? Like These are questions we go to the Bible to answer because they're not things we can just come up with on our own. And so Christian theology often begins with the asking of questions. And... And oftentimes these questions are significant enough um, and, and universal enough that the answers found in scripture are made into a kind of statement of faith. It's called a creed or a confession. This church is a confessional church, meaning that there is a particular confession, the Westminster Confession of Faith, that we think is a helpful summary and a faithful summary of what Scripture teaches. Uh, and, and these are kind of all over the place, not just in the Christian world, but in the Bible itself, right? Jesus is Lord. That was an early confession by Christians. Um, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, was a, was a confession of faith, a creed from before the time of Jesus, we're taking this fall to look at the Apostles' Creed, one of the earliest creeds outside of the Bible, into the passages of Scripture that informed it. And last week, like I said before, we looked at the deity of Jesus. That Jesus is not just a, some random dude, not, a, not just a good teacher, but he is uh, God. And, and that was the first of what I said was five sermons dealing with what we call the person and the work of Christ. Who he is and what he did. Okay? Oh, and does. This week we look at the reciprocal idea to his godhood, looking at the the fact that at the same time he is fully human. So if you have your place in Hebrews, we're in chapter 2 this morning. If you'd stand, that's our habit here, in honor of God's word. I'm going to be reading chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. As I do that, let me just remind us of something. This is God's word. This isn't our helpful ideas. These aren't even things that we as a church or as a community of faith or as a denomination, or even as Christians as a whole, laid claim on and said, this is for us. Instead, God's word lays claim on us. So let's hear it in that way. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood... He himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. And destroy all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but it helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is God's word for our flourishing. Would you pray with me? Our God, as we come to your word, we ask that you would do what only you can do. That you would open our hearts. You would open our eyes and our ears. For we would come and hear from you, see you, and receive you. And Spirit, if you are not active during this time, then we are all wasting that time. And so we pray that you would come in power. That you would produce faith where there is none. That you would give comfort and solace where there is only uh, trial and struggle. Would you, would you bring the dead to life? Would you meet us exactly where we are and, and preach your gospel to us, Lord? Let uh, Christ and his cross come to the fore. Let the one who speaks fall to the wayside. Jesus, you alone hold the words of eternal life. And so we listen. We listen, so speak. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Have a seat. So Christians, I I don't know if you're, you're probably aware of this, right? Christians can argue about some pretty silly things. And even if you're not a Christian, you probably know this. Sometimes those arguments literally don't matter at all. Um, The famous one is, of course, a group of scholastic theologians in in the Middle Ages who determined to argue amongst themselves how many angels could fit on the head of a pin. And that's become, at at times, that's been a cultural colloquialism, but that actually did happen. There were arguments over how many angels can fit on the head of a pin and so often I I wonder if we don't look at theology that way that it's all just kind of silly and argumentative and stuff we want to bark at each other about and that becomes because of that weariness that weariness over uh, division over what seems like little things the history of the discussion over Jesus can seem like this I think because it's littered with so many isms that you can grow tired rather quickly if you study it But how we understand Jesus is important, because it impacts how we understand God, how we understand ourselves, how we understand our need, our salvation, even our growth. And so, this is especially true when we talk about Jesus' humanity, because as Americans, we tend to think of Jesus as Superman. Right? Superman from another planet, coming to visit us with amazing powers that make him so unlike us, pretending to be like us. But who at any time is so above the cares of the world because he doesn't need to eat or have oxygen. A train can hit him and he walks away like Superman. And so we read the Gospels and we hear him talk in this ethereal, melodic voice because he doesn't seem real to us. But Christianity has been stubborn, as stubborn about his humanity, his full humanity, as it has been about his deity And here's what we're going to see this morning in Hebrews and why this matters to our day-to-day. Ready? Here's what we're going to see. We're going to see that God can relate to us because he became like us. If you've ever thought about that before. That God can relate to us because he became like us. We're going to look at this in three ways. There's an outline in your bulletin that's helpful. We're going to look at the fact of his humanity. We're going to look at the purpose of his humanity. And then we're going to look at the benefits of his humanity. Okay? The fact of it, the purpose of it, and the benefit of it. You ready? All right. Let's get started with the fact of his humanity, and particularly with its necessity. This is important because uh, the reality that Jesus became flesh, that the Son of God, that God the Son became flesh in Jesus, is not a historical accident, nor is it kind of plan B or some crazy event. It was absolutely necessary for the work that Jesus came to do. He had to be human to do what needed to be done, but to get to why, we have to remember the story of the Bible. And and some of you have been here and you've heard this story a million times, but this is really important for this particular sermon, so I need you to listen close, okay? The Bible teaches that God created everything from nothing, right? Not that he took what was there and kind of formed it and shaped it. He created everything from nothing with his voice, let there be Okay, the the theological term for that is ex nihilo, and if you put anything in Latin, it makes you sound way smart, so use that, okay, use that. But he created everything from nothing, and at the high point of creation, he created humanity. Humanity was created to be in relationship with him. We were created in his image, unique amongst all of creation, to love him with all that we are, to depend on him for our very source of being. And because we were made in his image, our very identity was tied up in him, in God. And we were in a promise-bound relationship with him. A promise-bound relationship the Bible calls a covenant. Okay, To depend on him for all things. We promised to depend on him, especially for our understanding of reality. And he promised us life. Life as we were created to be. Not just breath, but life as we were created to be. Fullness, flourishing, human flourishing. But in time we came to believe a lie. We wanted to be more than images. We wanted to be equals. We came to believe that God really didn't love us. He wasn't really out for us. He was holding us back. And what he was really trying to do was to keep us down. We came to believe that God couldn't be dependent on. That he didn't love us. That not only could we be independent of him, but that we needed to be. And so believing that... We betrayed Him. We turned from Him. We broke covenant with Him. It's what the Bible calls sin. We went our own way. And when we betrayed God, everything broke. We became guilty for betraying God. That shouldn't be offensive to us because all betrayals bring guilt. and We know that because we've been betrayed and we've betrayed others. But we also became broken. What I mean by that is that the Bible understands sin not just as something we do, but who we are. As people in our natural state, we are Sinners, We are in a state of independence away from God and that sin pervades every aspect of our being. Not that we are as bad as we could be, but just that everything we do is tainted by it. everything is touched by that so that even the morality that we follow is independent of God and therefore tainted with sin. So we became guilty, we became broken, but lastly, we became alienated from the God that we were made for. And what that means is, our relationship with him was broken. We were made for him to find our flourishing and our fullness in him, but now are separated from him. Which means that there is this space in us that we can't fill because it was made for God. Now, if that were the end of the story, we'd be in trouble but it wasn't god promised right there at the beginning of all at the beginning when we when we broke everything to fix it through through this new covenant that the the uh that theologians call the covenant of grace and what that meant was that he had this cryptic statement that he was going to come and deal with our sin that he would fix it but we would fix it that's just weird you're going to fix this it's going to be done through you but i'm going to do it i'm going to do it i'm going to do it but you're going to do it that's weird And then as the Bible plays out, we see him choosing this guy named Abraham who was worshiping false gods in the city of Ur. And he said that it would be through his family that he would rescue the world, that he would deal with sin, that he would fulfill his covenant promise. But the problem was that Abraham's family was as broken as everybody else. God gave them the law. He gave them this this, uh, perfect revelation, not only of himself, but of who we were meant to be. This understanding of what it means to worship him, and to love him, to love others. But they couldn't keep it. They couldn't keep it because they were broken, just like everybody else, just like you and just like me. But you see, humanity messed everything up. Humanity had to fix it. But we couldn't fix it because we're all stuck in our sin. Even when people have every advantage, like they did, like Abraham's family did, the law, God's word, it doesn't matter. But that makes sense, right? It makes sense if we understand the problem being independence from God because you can't fix your independence problem independently. That doesn't ever fix the problem. It just makes it worse. And this is the whole puzzle of redemption. God had promised that it would be through Abraham's family, but Abraham's family couldn't do it, and so God became part of Abraham's family to rescue the world. We needed someone who could both fully depend on God, love him with all of his being as we were made to, and also do something with our sins. Someone who could fulfill this covenant for us. And that's exactly what God did in Jesus. And that brings us to the reality of Jesus' humanity. Look down at verse 14. It says this. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. And then if you skip down to verse 17, it says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. These are very two very important verses. Okay, so So let me break them down a little. Because you see... People throughout the last 2,000 years have been tempted to think that Jesus was somehow less than fully human. Maybe you're tempted to that this morning. Maybe you do see Jesus as Superman. Maybe you wouldn't say that outwardly because you've been going to church a long time. But when you really think about it, when, the, when you think about praying to him or, or when you're tempted and you think, God can't really relate to me because he's not really like me. See, people have been tempted for the last 2,000 years to think that he was less than human in any number of ways. And these verses really strike against that. Verse 14 says that since we have flesh and blood, he also had them. That means a real body. And that strikes against the idea that that Jesus wasn't really human. He just looked like he was or what historically has been called docetism. Let me warn you, there's a lot of isms coming at you in a few minutes. Okay? If that's not something that's important, as soon as I say something-ism, you just... Boop, blank out and then come back okay so that that the idea that jesus just seemed to be human is called dosicism that he looked human but really wasn't but this isn't the case jesus had a body which means that jesus got hungry jesus got thirsty jesus got tired jesus had to use the bathroom jesus had weakness and frailty just like we do His body was as real as ours. Verse 17 expands on this, though, doesn't it? It says that he had to be made like us in every respect. Now, later in the same book, in the book of Hebrews, in chapter 4, the writer of Hebrews will modify that only slightly. That he had to be made like us in every respect, except there was no sin. But this means that whatever is essential to being human... Whatever is essential to being human, Jesus had it. Not only did he have a human body, but he also had a human mind. He learned things. In the the Gospel of Luke, as it's talking about little baby Jesus growing up to be big Jesus. It says that he, he grew in wisdom and in stature. Now some of you are like, wait a minute, but he's God. Yes, he was. And is. But he was also fully human. And so that brings us to another ism. Apollinarianism. Apollinarianism is another 4th another century issue that was the notion that Jesus did not have a human mind. But we have very clear places in the Gospels where Jesus admits to not knowing things. Right? Such as the time of his return. What was essential for him to know to be our Savior, he knew. But he had a human mind. Mind, but to, be also, but to be like us also means that he had emotions like us. Okay? Now, thankfully, there's no ism associated with this. But, but what we mean by that is the Gospels show us a Jesus who laughs, who cries, who's angry, who gets frustrated, who feels abandoned. He was vulnerable emotionally. He felt indignant when his disciples kept children from coming to him. He wept over Jerusalem and the death of his friend, and he cried out in agony on the cross. Jesus felt what we feel. But finally, it also meant that he had a will like ours a body, a mind, emotions and a will. It's So easy when we look at Jesus to believe that there's no way He can relate to our temptations, right? Because as God, how can God be tempted? It's not really that tempting. We fall back on this idea that he wasn't really human at all, but that's called monothelitism, which means one will, that Jesus had one will. It was God's will, and he never did anything. And the church rejected that in the seventh century. When Jesus chose to depend on the Father, listen to me, when Jesus chose to depend on the Father, he did it as a human. He did it as a human. He is like us in every way, but without sin. That's the reality. But this fact gives way to the purpose. Look down at verses 14 and 15 again. He partook of flesh and blood that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. All right, what is this talking about? Well, the Bible teaches that death is the penalty for sin. Death is the penalty for sin. You see, we think that death is a part of life, right? That's what we've been taught. So we've been taught by a culture that hates the idea that we can't beat death. But we know that's not right. We know that's not right because every time there's a death, whether it's your kitty cat or it's someone that you love dearly. I'm not saying you don't love your kitty cat dearly. But if it's not, you know, like a person that you love dearly. We know that death isn't, doesn't belong here. We know it intuitively. We rage against it. The Bible says that death is a penalty for sin. For breaking that covenant. And not just physical death, but a, but a spiritual death. Bearing the judgment due for our sin. And, and this passage is telling us that Jesus partook of flesh and blood to deal with this penalty. But he didn't do that in, in the abstract, though. Look at verse 15. Because it talks about how we have, we have dealt with this sense that we aren't right. We, how, how it is that we've dealt with this death. It says we've been subject to lifelong slavery. That slavery isn't to the fear of death. look again at the passage. It's that the fear of death produced the slavery. The slavery is our independence. It is our seeking to make ourselves right. Seeking to get satisfaction. Seeking to find an identity for ourselves. Whether that's with religion or money or pleasure or success or whatever it is for you. We were stuck. We were stuck in need of someone to redeem us. I know I say this a ton, but we need to hear it all the time. Slaves can't redeem themselves that's the difference between religion and christianity religion says here's what you need to do to make things right christianity says here's what god did to make things right with you the power of death that the writer talks about here isn't just the dealing out of death because first samuel 2 one of the books in the old testament says that the lord brings death and makes alive it's not as if there's some other god called the devil who's in charge of that It's not just the dealing out of death, it is the power of our complete alienation from God. And that is something that Satan knows a good bit about. And I know some of you don't believe in the devil, but just follow me for the ideas, okay? We can talk about that later. Satan began that work of our alienation from God in the beginning and labors long to continue it. And he does it not through what you see in a horror movie, but through fortifying the lie the lie that we now believe by nature. To fuel our fear that we can't depend on God, that he's not someone that is dependable, that he's actually out to get us. And then to fuel our pride that we can be independent, we can be his equal. But Jesus took on flesh to conquer death, to disarm the devil, and to heal our brokenness by dying and defeating death in his resurrection. And he did this by making propitiation. Look at the rest of verse 17. It says, so that, he did this so that, he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, among churchy words, propitiation is about the churchiest. It's so churchy, in fact, that some of y'all have been going to church your whole lives and have never heard it. Right? It's, it's like, it's a higher degree of churchy. So, it's an incredibly important word, though. So, if you've, if you've checked out, I need you to check back in. The word propitiation means to make propitious, helpful, right? Super helpful. Thanks, Rick. We can move on. No, not at all. Propitiation is the idea. It's the idea that both all of God's wrath for our sin has been poured out on Jesus and that because of that, all of our guilt has been removed. That's what Jesus did on the cross. All of God's wrath for our sin has been poured out on Jesus, and our guilt has been removed. This is why the power of the devil has been taken away and we have been redeemed from our slavery. Because what brought us under all of that was our sin. And so Jesus came in the flesh to deal with our sin. As a human, he obeyed perfectly. And as a human, he died in our place. And that means that on the cross, God emptied all of the wrath, all of the anger, all of the, all of the judgment due for our betrayal, all the judgment for guilt. All that we deserved, he, he poured it all out on himself in Jesus. And when we place our faith in Christ, this is what we are united to. Not a kind of passing over of sins. Not a kind of going, God going, okay, we're good, everything's fine, don't worry about it, I'm, I'm all okay now. He doesn't pass over our sins as if they didn't matter. He deals with them on the cross. God became human in Jesus... So that humanity could keep the covenant with God. So that humanity could answer for humanity's guilt for breaking the former covenant. So that humanity could bear the weight of humanity's betrayal of God. But also, so that you and I would never have to. Jesus did all of this in our place. And here's why this matters. If you're not a Christian here this morning, and not everyone in this place is, we're glad to have you. We want you to be here. And if you're not a Christian here in this place this morning, what are you hoping will avert the judgment that you deserve? You're like, I don't deserve any judgment, don't you? I mean, come on, man. I do. I'm pretty jacked up. Like, I get it. I know. What are you hoping is going to avert that judgment? It can't be a cosmic scale cosmic scale doesn't do anything with guilt right that that's like hoping that your guilt won't matter but listen if you keep the law of this country your entire life but then commit a serious felony that crime is not passed over because of previous years of law keeping is it and frankly that analogy assumes that you and i can actually keep the law in the first place and do a bunch of good stuff in the first place In Jesus, though, that guilt has been completely dealt with. That anger completely emptied. And so, come to Jesus and be forgiven in him. There's not like the, well, what's the path to follow? There's there's no path. He is the path. What's the rules? You don't have to keep the rules. He kept the rules for you. Come to him. And if you are a Christian here this morning, can I tell you this? God is propitious towards you. Some of us come to Jesus, and then when we mess up, and we do constantly, we then try to atone for this ourselves, don't we? We're I mean, like, yeah, I mean, I don't hit myself or anything like that, but, but what do you do? Well, oh, I keep my distance from him, or I feel like I have to be sorry enough. Have to, I'm just not worthy to come to him. Can you add to the cross of Christ? Listen to me. Can you stand at the foot of the cross of Jesus? Standing at the foot of the cross of the suffering Son of God and go, Yeah! But this thing, man. Not enough. Not enough. Really? Jesus has made propitiation for you. The gospel is as true for you right now as it was when you first believed. Which means that whether you... You muffed it all up when you came in this morning or you do it later today, or later this week, or if you're really blind to yourself, in a month. That there is no judgment left for you. Because Jesus bore it all. Now, let's talk a little bit about the benefits of Jesus' humanity, as if that last one wasn't enough. Did you notice that little phrase that we haven't talked about yet? Merciful and faithful high priest. Maybe you did, but you probably glossed over it. You probably glossed over it a lot, like I do. Uh, that's a hard one to really camp on because it's very disruptive. And if it isn't for you, that's that's fine. You can just listen into why it's disruptive for me. Okay. Here's why. What that means is that Jesus is compassionate towards you, and he if he is a merciful and faithful person towards you, it means he has compassion on you. His humanity makes him compassionate towards you. He lived on this earth. He experienced. Suffering, Not just on the cross. For 33 years, a sinless person was sinned against all the time. Think about that. Think about how many times you justify the way that you treat other people because of the way they've treated you. You go, yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I spoke. I, I was real short with that person. I was really harsh, right? Yeah, I, I may have said something mean about them. But you should see what they did to me. Jesus never did anything to anyone. He suffered he knows the power of temptation. He knows our frailty. But here's the kicker He can be merciful and faithful to us because He has made forgiveness. But that's not how we see God, is it? Many of us see God as angry, disappointed, disapproving, shaming, full of rage, unless, of course, we appease Him. How do we appease Him? I don't know. How do you appease Him? Is it coming here? Is it throwing a check in the basket as it comes by? Maybe checks aren't your thing. Maybe it's too disco pop for you. You're just throwing cash in there, and you're like, this is my thing. Maybe it's by by being really tolerant towards others. You think you can appease God with your tolerance. Because of this, because we see God as angry and disappointed and disapproving and full of rage, because of this, we we hide. We blame shift. We try to perform, and when we can't do that. We keep distance from God because we're afraid of Him. But what if that isn't how it is at all. What if our hiding and and our shame is keeping us from the only thing that can actually heal it? The love of God for us. This is what this merciful and faithful thing means. If you are a Christian, let me say it again. God's wrath for you has been emptied. Emptied! That cup is dry. There is nothing left for you. This doesn't mean he approves of of sin when you do it. He doesn't. But he's not in heaven going, what's wrong with you? He knows what's wrong with you. That's why God the Son took on flesh. He knows what's wrong with you because in his flesh, God the Son can understand what frailty and weakness is like. And how hard it is to resist temptation. And you and I hear that and we go, no, he can't. He can't know how hard it is for, for us to resist temptation. You and I both know we resist temptation for about 2.7 seconds. Right? How hard was that? What if it was your whole life? How hard would that temptation be if 33 years of it were going on? He has compassion on you because he is propitious towards you. And this means you don't have to stay distant when you see your sin. Run to Him. He loves you. In in Christ, He is for you. It also means you don't have to be defensive when someone confronts you on your sin. Someone comes to you and says, like, hey, you did X, Y, and Z. Yeah. Yeah, I did. I I probably did. I, I struggle with that. Pray for me. Jesus understands. It doesn't mean He excuses he doesn't excuse. He bore it on the cross. There's no excuse for that. He doesn't excuse it, but he understands. And he has forgiven you. And Finally, it means you can have compassion on others. Listen, let me be honest with you. I struggle with some things that some of you can't understand at all. You don't know why that would be a struggle for anyone. And some of you struggle with things that I couldn't understand and, and wouldn't understand why you would struggle with that at all. But the reason any of us struggle with anything is exactly the same. And so you can have compassion on the struggling because in Christ, God had compassion on you. And if you've been given that kind of compassion, you have lots to give to others. Last thing, the help in trial. Look down at verse 18. We talked about this for a second, but I want to flesh it out more. Because he himself suffered when tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. We don't believe that. We don't believe that. Uh, um, earlier this week, I asked, uh, I asked the other two guys on staff if they would read the passage. And when we got together, just let me know what kind of questions they had as I was doing my preparation. Things that they might have seen or asked that I may not. It's kind of helpful to bounce stuff off. And, and the one thing that both of them said almost like clearly, universally uh, apart from like, can someone explain propitiation? Because no one knows what that means. Is, Jesus doesn't really, can't really relate to me when I'm tempted. See, we, we don't believe that. We don't believe what this verse says. We don't think of Jesus being tempted because we see him as Superman. But this tells us that Jesus suffered when tempted. Again, the reality. If Jesus never sinned, if he never gave in to temptation, it means he suffered more and longer under temptation than any of us ever have his temptation was so great that when he was in the garden of gethsemane before he was arrested before he was taken on the cross he's literally sweating blood which is a physiological reality that can happen under extreme duress extreme duress he knows what it's like and he can help but how let me give you three ways okay three ways jesus can help Some of you in this room, most of you, I would imagine, have suffered, right? You've been through some form of suffering. Maybe you don't grade it well because it's not as great as someone else's suffering, but it's still suffering. What what we want in the midst of our suffering is presence and hope. The presence of someone who can just be with us and hope that we can make it through, right? We want someone who gets it. That's what Jesus can do for us. But when we suffer unto, under temptation, most of us don't seek God's presence. We turn to accuse Him. Uh, theologian Donald MacLeod says it this way He says, When we cry out, God, why me? Jesus replies, Me too. Me too. He has been there, and He's made it through. So, first, we, he can help us through presence and hope. Second, he offers us the Spirit. On a technical level, Jesus did not resist temptation because he was God. He resisted temptation because he was full of the Spirit. He resisted temptation because he was full of the Spirit. That same Spirit that dwells in you as a Christian, which means that he can help by providing the same help that he had. So he helps us through presence and hope. He helps us through the Spirit. Lastly, he offers us the truth of his word. All temptation is based on one thing. All temptation. I don't care what you're tempted with. Whether you're tempted with greed or abusing your sexuality. Whether you're tempted with, I don't know, um, gossip. Or tempted with workaholism. All of those have the same root The lie from the garden. You cannot depend on God. He is not enough to satisfy you. He will leave you. And you can be independent. You don't have to rely on anyone. God's word shows us that that cannot be further from the truth. And so we return to that word. To find the help that he knows that we need. We have a merciful and faithful Savior, one who even now, even now, it's a section of this passage I couldn't, I didn't have time to draw out. Even now, he pleads for us before the throne of God because he has been where we are. God isn't aloof from us. Instead, God can relate to us because he has become like us. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, Son of God, Savior of sinners and friend of sinners. I know that I am not the only one in this room who struggles to see you as fully human, as struggles to, to understand that you understand me, not just as my creator, but as my friend, as my brother, as someone who has walked or I've walked. And though we cannot understand what it means that you went through the life that we go through without sinning. We know that in you, we will understand one day. And so we pray two things. One, Lord, that you would be near to us no matter where we're at this morning. Whether we are still wondering what to do with you. Or that we've been walking with you for our whole lives. As long as we can remember. I pray, Lord, that you would give us your presence. You would give us faith to live into this. And secondly, I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would come again quickly to make us like you. While we tarry, would you continue that work, that good work that you began in us who have come to faith in Christ? Would you continue that good work? But Lord, come again. Come again soon to make the world right again, to make us right again. Thank you that you have compassion on us. Receive now our praise in light of that compassion. In Christ's name, amen.